and welcome back or welcome to another On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, coaching buddy, Jonathan Marcus. John, another lovely day. What's going on? Oh, you know I'm hyped. You know I'm so hyped. Why? Because that's the reason I'm always hyped. We're back giving people what they want. Yes, sir. Let's go. All right, John, always bring in the energy. So before we jump into today's topic, uh, just a reminder that once again, we've got the Scholar Program going strong, all sorts of great things. If you haven't yet, check it out. And we've got Super Running, the blog going live, all good stuff. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard all about it. But again, Check it out. We've we actually John and I just got done with a meeting on some fun new iterations to both things that we're gonna be hopefully over the next month or two rolling out. So always looking at how to better serve coaches and athletes who are part of it and how to, you know, accomplish our long term vision of making coaches and athletes better. That's right. Make coaching great again. Let's go. <laughs> Hopefully we have more success than that. Uh, <laughs> um, anyways, so on that lovely note, let's let's jump into today's topic, which is training stimulus and recoverability. The reason why you aren't running as fast as you can. Yes. 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 Oh man, that's the that's a big bold claim. So um, let's unpack this a little bit. So what do we mean by training stimulus and recoverability? Yeah, or we should say training stimulus threshold too. Um, there we go. Yeah, I think that's the key, right? That is the um, golden egg or golden goose, if you will, that all coaches are looking for. And it doesn't matter what sport you're in. It's trying to decipher each athlete's training stimulus threshold and then understand what is the um, complementary degree of recovery or rest that uh, the athlete needs to adapt to that training stimulus threshold. Exactly. So um, these are two important concepts that I think often get lost because we tend to uh, succumb to what I call the programming effect or the, um, you know, falling in love with the program type deal, which is we tend to think that, or we tend to coach to the average, right? And you see this in all from high school to college to pro, because what happens? We have a workout on Monday, right? We have maybe two days easy. We come back on Thursday. We have a day easy. We come back for a long run, right? And we just go through these cycles. And we've talked about this before on seven day, 10 day, nine day, whatever you want cycle. But the reason we have these kind of standardized approaches is is because we've kind of taken the average on, well, most people recover after two days after this type of workout. So we're going to do this. And we have the same stimulus threshold issue here in relation to the average. Because if you look at our workouts, we're like, well, most people can do about, you know, uh, X number of miles of volume at threshold pace, right? Most people can do about, you know, you know, 10 by K at 
8K pace or whatever it is. You know, we have these standardized workouts because, again, we assume, hey, the stimulus for threshold is about the same for everybody. Uh, most people can do 10 by 400 at at mile pace, right? So I, I, I think, well, it works again for the average, and we've come to these over time. What we miss out on are the outliers on both the, you know, on both ends of the spectrum on on what it takes to get this stimulus for adaptation. Yeah, I, I think we have to remember, like, too, that the training load necessary to elicit, like, an adaptive response for each athlete is the question is, what's the optimal amount, not maximal amount, too? In distance running, we tend to fall into the volume trap where maximal amount of work or high work capacity is the thing that's desired. And we try to ramp people up to that as quick as possible because the more you run, the better you get, right? Not necessarily. And this is where the concept of determining each athlete's um, stimulus threshold is key because that is really what we're trying to do is understand where is that point of optimal for each person and unfortunately, it is also a moving target as well for each person, depending on a variety of different circumstances, right? We have essentially three different types of training effects from a, a big, bold, um, you know, point of view, which is like the immediate, the residual, and then the cumulative. And we often always think in the immediate, what's happened now? What's the immediate response? Did we get immediately better today? When a lot of training, especially in um, athletic development and distance running is more cumulative and takes a long block of time to actually be realized. And I think it comes back to me, Steve, is understanding like if an athlete's unable to recover from the training stress in the time that you allotted, whether it be within a, a workout between reps or between sets, or whether it's from workout to workout, or whether it's from, um, you know, training week to training week, if that athlete's unable to recover from the training stress, then the load that was applied is an inappropriate or not appropriate load. And sometimes that's tough for a coach to swallow um, because we're supposed to be the master uh, architects here of this game of adaptation or training stimulus adaptation, training stimulus adaptation, but we are just guessing because we don't have enough data points on each individual. We have a general idea of the adaptive process, but we have to take a slice of humble pie sometimes and use the evidence of reality of that athlete and say, is this athlete uh, recovering from the training stress in the predicted time horizons? And we also have to remember too, no two athletes are the same in ability um, and nor are they the same in the ability to recover. So that what that means is different athletes have different ability, right? Different um, speeds they can go that are optimal for them or different amounts of workloads they can, they can do that are going to be advantageous. But they also have different abilities to recover. And that recovery ability is a key, key, key component of training. It is the, you know, back of the hand. And we often spend a lot of time worrying about what to do from a training stimulus standpoint, which is the front of the hand, but they, they're one in the same. It's, it's a unitary whole. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 they work in sync or work in to get in together. Right. So, you know, I, 
I think as we unpack and figure this out, I think um, I'm trying to think how how best to uh, how best to tackle these two topics. If we should do it in in concert or take one at a time and give some examples, what do you think? I think we should do it in concert, just because again they exist in concert. We do talk about them right a lot um separate but it's a misnomer it's it's definitely not reality and yeah so yeah so so here we've got it's like this proportionality you know it's it's like very simple um but it's it's they they work together in the sense that if i go harder all of a sudden i need more recover but like recovery afterwards and that harder is in relation to where my kind of stimulus threshold is and its individuality of that. Maybe to get us started, I'll use um, a, a few examples from athletes who I, who I have coached. And we'll, we'll use extremes of examples because I think that helps illustrate this thing pretty good. But uh, Sarah Hall, for example has an incredible ability to do lots of hard work and bounce back very quickly on it for the most part. So her recoverability is so high, right? That it allows a, allows the density of work within a period to be really high as well. So she can kind of go hard, recover pretty quickly, come back off of it. And over time, what I saw when I was coaching her and then what I know now with Ryan Hall, her husband coaching her is that stimulus threshold that she needs has gone up and up and up and up and up. Right. So at the very beginning, 10 miles at 5:30 pace could do now it's, you know, 15, 16, 17 miles at that pace, you know, for example, well, the recoverability off of that has stayed w- relatively the same as, as far as I'm aware. So, you have this high density athlete. On the other hand, um, I'll give you an example from uh, Will Nation, who I coached in high school, and then also coached for a bit uh, post collegiately, who ran, I believe, two fifteen in the marathon. Um, I remember all the way back in high school is Will would tape. Will would see his performance start to plummet in the middle of the season. Um, and this held all the way through uh, through his post-collegiate. If we kept the density about the same in terms of two workouts longer in a week, because his recoverability at that time wasn't wasn't as 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 robust. We'll say he could handle it for a couple weeks on. But then he needed a, a down week, you know, in high school, for example, to extend him to be able to last to the district regional state meet. We literally would take a week in the middle of the cross country or track season and do no workouts, right? To get him on the right side of things. So we have that's one solution. Another athlete I'm, you know, I worked with at the college level, we had to spread the workouts out instead of two days. After pretty intense workouts, we had to have three days, right? Which put them on a different schedule from the rest of the team, which was kind of difficult at moments, but their recoverability wasn't there. And you might say, well, why not just decrease the training stimulus a bit? 
Well, we tried that to get them on that, you know, two day, whatever cycle. But what we found is he needed the high level of workout, the really hard workout to get the adaptations he needed to run fast, but he just couldn't recover off of it very well. So it wasn't a sense of, oh, we decrease the training stimulus to a degree and therefore he recovers in two days. It was, no, he needed to hit this certain threshold in order to improve these abilities we're working on. We just need to, the 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 compromise comes in extending that recovery because he needs more than, you know, Joe Blow, the average runner over here. So just throwing those ideas out there as three different ways to see or attack this problem um and uh, highly individual but we're all looking at okay how do we get the adaptations that we need and how do we keep them in a positive sense of of coming off of it and bouncing back and there's no average runner like this is the (laughs) this is the great misunderstanding is we've fallen victim to these uh, monotonous cycles of weekly training paradigms in any sport, because we think, you know, that average exists, but there is no average, right? Like there's no person who has an average height, an average weight, an average income, right? The average is a synthesis of a variety of individuals. And so that with, from a coaching standpoint, again, the reason we need a humble pie, in my opinion, is we have to understand if the athlete is not adapting or recovering on the time horizons of what you prescribed or wrote, it's not the athlete's fault. It's the training plan's fault. It's your fault as the coach. And you and we need to be sensitive to that, like you have given here, Steve, and understand who recovers well and quicker off of some types of works, has a a lower sensitivity, and who recovers um, slower off of other types of work, has a higher sensitivity. And yeah, this is a really good example too, you know, my typically right the more elastic or neural runners your middle distance runners they can do speed work really high neural demand work because they lived in that world for so long um if you get them as a you know senior in high school or a college runner or post collegiate runner and they can bounce back really fast because again their sensitivity to that sp- true speed work or even speed endurance type work is pretty high because they have a high tolerance for years of exposure to it versus your marathon type, your long distance runner type, 10K, 5K type, their sensitivity to high demand, high neural work is probably very um, high, meaning it's going to take a long time for them to absorb and recover from that. Um, And it's the inverse, right? For the middle distance runner in terms of that high volume you know, uh, threshold type work, that's going to take a lot out of them. And it's going to take a lot of time for them to recharge after that and absorb that stimulus. And again, for the distance runner, not so much. Why? The habituation of exposure in that training direction. And so this is also too, right, where it gets really important to understand what is complementary and um, contradictory training stimuli for that athlete, for that person. And typically, Anything that is low sensitivity or things that they can do, an athlete can do pretty regularly and not be too uh, ruffled, right, where the homeostasis is interrupted, that's very complementary type work for that athlete. 
Now, when you start to throw in high sensitivity work, that then becomes contradictory for the athlete because whatever work they're doing, whether it's work they're accustomed to or more work of the novel stimulus that they're really sensitive to, is going to have a certain uh, downgrade in effect because when they do it, they won't be fully recovered. And you'd be surprised. I'm always surprised at how long those recovery time horizons are for each individual. I might think a plyometric session for a well-conditioned um, distance runner, you know, half marathon type, you know, is not going to take a lot out of them, but it can take a whole week for them to really bounce back and feel like, okay, I've absorbed that one plyometric session where we only did maybe total 25 um, plyometric jumps or depth jumps, right? Uh, it wasn't that much volume of work, but the amount of intensity interpreted by the athlete was really high. And that's where we as coaches have to really respect that uh, in the training um, planning and also progressions and where you have to really, really spend a lot of time knowing your athlete. Yeah. I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the sensitivity there and the, the, that's a nice way of looking at it. And I think the knowing your athlete, what we're getting at here is figuring out a way to it's almost like you're you're testing things right you're applying the stimulus and then you're seeing how they respond to it and it's about being aware and making note of like how these individual athletes come off of it you know a couple years ago uh actually more than a couple years ago when i was first getting in, in a, into college coaching what we did with um a number of athletes is I just had them fill out a questionnaire, right? How they were feeling, like how their legs felt, if they had pop in them, were they fatigued, you know, how their run felt in terms of were they able to just, you know, run seven minute pace easy or was it a trudge? All these different things, right? And for a cross country season, I tracked all of these different things after different workout types. So after we did sprints, you know, after we did long intervals, tempos, short intervals, whatever have you, you know, and I, I combined it all for each athlete into, you know, each time they did short intervals, each time they did tempos and then looked for trends in the one, two, three, four days afterwards. And it was amazing to me the wide variety and the individuality of the responses, which is something that you just you know, noted there, John, is that some athletes, you know, they do, I don't know, eight by, you know, eight second hill sprints. And the next day they'd feel great and their legs would feel awesome. And others, you know, two days later, they would still feel sore, tired, trashed, non-responsive from that type of work. Right. And then the opposite occurred on like tempo runs. Some, you know, a day or two later, they're fine. Everything's back to normal. You know, their legs, their soreness, their energy levels, all back to normal. Others, you know, it would not come back to their kind of homeostasis normal time for four or five days, right? And I think not everyone needs to do something as, you know, extensive as that. But I think paying attention and almost figuring out how to classify your runners and how they how do they respond and what their low sensitivity and high sensitivity to using your language 
is, you know, one of the the first things you got to do as a coach. Yeah, it's also we have to remember, too, is adaptation of different training demands occurs at different rates. And this, I think we forget, too, and that's happens at an individual level, like we've been talking about with the sensitivity issue. So, you know, when we're programming training, right, for one athlete, a series of med ball slams might be um, be like a, a, a post-potentiation activation activity. You might perk them up versus for another athlete, it could really dampen them because the sensitivity is really high. Or, you know, someone doing a, a complex of squat to overhead press, like I said, it could really be something that charges them up and gets them amped and ready for like say work uh, track workout the following day. But for another athlete, it could again have a lot of dampening and leave them very cognitively fuzzy. Right. Um, and that's where, again, we have to, as coach, take a guess on an athlete and then observe in training. And that's why getting back to the period periodization schemes are important too. Like when you are periodizing your training, when you're in a general phase or a general period, that's where you do a lot of different work. To, and if you're working with a new athlete, whether it's a freshman or a new client or what have you, you're as a coach, that period is sometimes the most important with new athletes to really be highly observant to see what is their response horizons and recovery horizons to different types of general conditioning activities. And that can give you when you see patterns and trends like you did, Steve, when you just took a very simple intake form athlete questionnaire and just aggregate that over a couple weeks after a variety of different types of training activities, you can then see exactly their expression as they're telling you and couple that with your observation as a coach. Um, but this is where we miss the boat sometimes. It, exactly. And I think a lot of times people think it's like uber complicated and you need to measure HRV and all these different things. But all, all we're doing is looking for patterns, you know, and it's it's no different than what Bill Bowerman did with Kenny Moore way back in the day, right? right? It's like he realized and recognized the pattern that that Kenny Moore couldn't train with Steve Prefontaine on, on you know, um, to the same degree in density. So Moore had more space, slower runs, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you know, it's it's something we all do as coaches, but I think like what happens now is especially at the collegiate and high school level, we get locked into these patterns of uh, of programming. I think any level, right? It's this idea of routine, um, and like you gotta you gotta have a routine and not deviate from the routine. But unfortunately, right, routines can become monotonous, and we know that we respond best to a uh, certain degree, not an over, overzealous, uh, a chaotic degree, but a certain degree, a planned degree of variety. Yes, yes. I mean, I think, I think at the pr- it, it is. It's like this push of routine and um, certainty, right? And then it's also this push of uh, again at the high school and college level. You have this. Well, I have a meet every Saturday, so how am I going to fit this stuff in? You know, and you get you get sucked into this okay, this pattern because of this constraint that you have and you can't figure out. And it's interesting. You're starting over the past several years, you've seen coaches um, add in post, 
you know, race tempos and stuff like that. And that's, uh, that I believe is a way to, you know, disrupt that cycle for some in the sense that they say, okay, like we're not going to go on our our normal, hopefully cycle. We're going to make this race a actual hard, hard day and add something to it. So I'm not saying that's a great solution or the best solution, but you're starting, you know, other coaches, for example, have added, you know, long cool downs after races, for example, to say, okay, we're not going to try and shove a long run in this week. Um, we're going to, you know, get a longer cool down in, have something, have this be that stimulus and then allow us more space to come off of this race instead of coming back the next day and trying to do uh, a long Sunday, you know, long run after a Saturday race. So there's, there's modifications that can that are happening that I think over the past you know 10 15 years have taken place but I think it's more of how do we how do we free ourselves from these patterns and routines so that we're making sure we're paying attention to this training stimulus threshold and recoverability for each individual and one key way to do that too that I take into my practice is um, looking at the technical execution of a movement right so yeah you may prescribe, a 60 minute, 30 minute extended cool down after a, you know, a race or like a dual meet. And, you know, if the athlete ran like the mile, the two mile, the four by four or something, as a coach, you need to be aware, like if that person's movement quality is really crappy because they're exhausted because of all this load that they had, that was a high stimulus. And you as a coach might have thought, oh no, it's not that big of a stimulus for them. You know, they're, they're, you know, pre senior states, woman or man, uh, male athlete, but you're watching them move on the cooldown and it just looks like absolute slop. That's a good time to intervene and say, Hey, you know what? Actually I was wrong. Just make it 10 minutes and be done because we, and especially in distance running have this overemphasis on conditioning and conditioning is this thing. Like if you need to do it constantly at the most highest level, and if you don't all of a sudden tomorrow, you're going to wake up and you're just going to be unfit. That's not the case at all. You know, a good example of this, uh, having that sensitivity to technical execution and how someone's moving is a couple of years ago um, when I was working with Eleanor Fulton, she was going to go to the you know World Cross Country Championships in, I can't remember if it was Uganda or somewhere else, you know, and we had the, the last workout before her trip overseas, right? And this was like, it's a long trip. And she didn't sleep well the night before, you know, a lot of things were popped up in her world and whatever. And she was just doing her normal warm up. And we have what we call activation, which is essentially a screen check for me and the athlete before we start workout. And it's a very simple activity. It's just 600 or 800 meters at like a threshold pace, couple 200s at 5k type effort, and then a couple hundreds at 3k and 15 an 800 meter effort, right? It's, it's a little different for everyone, but that was hers at the time. And just watching her do that, she just didn't look right. She just was complaining excessively about being fatigued, complaining excessively about being tired. But she wanted to be a good soldier and, you know, check the boxes off and get the work done. Um, and, but I told her, no, go home, go, go take a nap, like chill out, like go do something. You know, today we're going to just complete cut the session like go to the set farmer's market, like just do something restorative. And at first she was very um, 
hesitant to take that um, advice. And I said, look, you have to believe in the cumulative training effect of all the work you've done. And this little session a week before this, you know, global championship meet is not going to give you any added fitness. It's all it's going to do is in this state to extract from your ability to compete at a, a high level. So just trust yourself, trust your training, trust me, trust everything. And just, you know, take a zero today because that's what you need because you're not moving well. You're telling me every time you come around a track, you feel like crap more, more than you usually do. Like I gave her a list of all these uh, inventory of all these reasons why coupled with our observations and it was the right choice, right? Because then she was able to go um, travel, uh, you know, get ready and, you know, have a, a really solid uh, outing at the, you know, world championship cross-country relays, right? And that's, it's tough to do sometimes. And I was admiring this recently, like ath- good athletes tend to be overachievers in their mindset, right? And sometimes we forget that laziness or, you know, not doing work is achieving the training aim versus always doing the work and just checking the box off. And we have to be sensitive to that and make as a coach, those alterations through observation, if the technical execution of how they're moving, whether it's doing a deadlift or whether it's doing a sprint or whether it's even doing an easy run is way, way off from kind of the tolerance that you as a coach have come to expect of seeing that athlete and just doing the work in an unsound manner because it appeased the volume gods may not be the best solution and may not be the best thing activity because the residual of that could be again, extending the recoverability because there's now super exhausted rather than just exhausted and or mechanical stress because they're moving in a uh, pattern that is not virtuous, that now they have to take an extra day or two longer because they strain this or this is sore or what have you um, before the next quality session. So again, we have to also keep that weathered eye at all at at all um, costs if we can as a coach. So let's let's break this down on recoverability because I think this is important because a lot of times we get uh, we talk about the fatigue component of it, right? Because, uh, and the fatigue component of it, I mean, um, basically the fatigue after, after longer stuff. Um, but there's, there's other components to the recoverability. So we have this generalized, we'll call it physiological fatigue, which could be, um, you know, glycogen depletion. It could be, you know, energy system kind of overload to a degree. It could be, uh, lactic, you know, hydrogen ion accumulation, but we also have the neural component of fatigue, right? We also have the mechanical, like load and recoverability of the tendons, muscles, all all that stuff coming together, and all of that impacts recoverability, right? So, and we also have, you know, at the muscular level, obviously, et cetera, we could go on for days, but I think bringing up the movement is important here because here, here's how I like it, like to think of it in terms of recoverability. If you watch someone race, if you watch a race, right, some people 
afterwards collapse and are just done from a cardiovascular standpoint, right? They collapse because their body's like, oh my gosh, we can't pump enough blood to clear everything out. So we need to collapse to the ground so that our heart can be on the same plane as everything else. And it's a lot easier to pump um, in this plane versus going against gravity when we're standing up, right? Some people are, are fine cardiovascularly wise, right? They're standing up, they're walking around. But man, if you watched it, they're like, they're like stumbling in terms of their, their neural ability has decreased to such a degree that they like trip over their own spikes, et cetera, et cetera. It's a different kind of fatigue. And, and that's just one example. But I think it, it comes to this recoverability is different athletes have different recoverability parameters um, based on what kind of, uh, you know, where their limiting factors are and what kind of um, strengths and weaknesses they have. Uh, that allow them to get to these different performances. Yeah, and that's super key because it's a it's a it's a clear tell, right? Um, and a lot of times, right, we tend to think recovery can only be measured through these internal mechanisms like heart rate, HRV, um, you know, what have you, um, um, biochemical, um, you know measurements and that and it's true it does but we as coaches don't necessarily always have that accessibility to that type of data and we got to use the data the observations that um, we have in real time to make quick and hopefully correct decisions in the moment that kind of keep that course correct that keep the athlete on course right and that's different for each athlete this is why there's value as a coach and steve and i talk about a lot of watching someone move over and over and over again, you get habituated to their movement pattern and their movement um, ability in different scenarios when fresh, when slightly fatigued, and when totally spent. And like, I've watched so many at, like athletes, the longer I work with an athlete, the quicker I can make that decision because I just have way more hours of observation of how they're moving in different contexts. And then I can just be like, oh no, cut it right now. And, you know, if a coach is shadowing me who's new um, to the training environment or what have you, they're like, oh, why'd you decide to do that? I go, oh, they weren't moving well. They weren't moving well enough. And it's like, what does that mean, right? Well, from a technical execution standpoint, we also have to understand different movement patterns elicit different responses. So if you have a certain design about the um, uh, efficiency or magnitude of a movement and that person's not moving like that. It can't express itself as running slower on the track, which is a really easy way to make that gauge. But also, too, the motor skill we're teaching that athlete in the moment is not conducive to getting them ready for the thing we're trying to get them ready for, which is race at a certain tempo or race at a certain pace. And this is what I mean by overachievers sometimes get greedy when they should be a little bit more relaxed and then sometimes get relaxed when they um, should be a little bit more greedy in terms of at in different phases of training. So when your training is more general and condition and early on, you shouldn't be that greedy. The whole goal is just to get work in. And so it's okay because it's more general in context, more preparatory in context. 
it's okay to have things be a little sloppy here or there because as a coach, you're trying to correct things. But in the specific period, when you're getting ready, when you're trying to dial in a pace, when you're trying to dial in um, a quality and um, certain degree of effort that is necessary to race at the level you're preparing for, that's when you need to be really, really um, uh, strict, in my opinion, about how well you're doing things and at what level um, th- there and what the tolerance is at the level of um, technical execution, because that has a direct, not just physiological, but neurological translation to what you're trying to do in the racing environment. And that's where, again, different athletes, like you, you know, give the example of like Ryan, uh, Sarah Hall and Will Nation have different needs at different times. And that's what makes coaching so hard is, being able to be forth um, thinking enough to kind of plan those down periods if you need them. Like, you know, as a good example, it's like uh, right now, like a lot of athletes I've been working with have been going through a really um, heavy block of training, the fundamental period of training, which is, uh, you know, divided into several different discrete blocks in my periodization scheme. But now they're coming up to a full week of restitution, a full week of just absorbing the work they've done for the past nine, 10 weeks in a row, right? There's many rest days in there, here and there, but they've been pretty diligent in, you know, executing things with a high compliancy. And now it's like, okay, take a whole week and we're just going to do very easy work, recovery work, non-stimulating work, work that's not hard. And, you know, towards the end of the week, they're getting itchy. Like, okay, when am I going to work out again? When am I going to go again? It's like, Take the whole week. You need it because the next big block of training is coming up where, yeah, you're going to be under kind of this chronic load, but I want to make sure like you are fully, fully, fully have fully absorbed the prior block of training and period of training before we move forward with the next one. And that's where, again, as a coach, you have to be very, um, you know, firm, but also very communicative about why you're, you know, choosing to rest when you choose to rest and why you're choosing to move, you know, accelerate forward when you're choosing to do that as well. And so the athlete can understand how it gets them to their goal, right? And the goal, like, is pretty simple. It's just the direction you're going, like the direction of the destination you want to meet. And if they perceive and understand very well, because you explain it to them, um, really well that they're on track, then you won't get any pushback. But if you haven't communicated that and you're just kind of that like all knowing dictator coach, who just like kind of igloy style, right. Who just says, do as I say every day. I'm not going to tell you anything ever. Um, in this day and age, it doesn't bode well with most athletes. At least I work with, uh, you can get a great away with a certain degree of that, but not, you know, globally. So at any time, right you got to be able to tell the athlete why, why they're doing what they're doing to instill and maintain that confidence. You know, uh, I'm glad you brought up almost, it's, it's almost like that excitement of training, right? It's like that, that itching to get back out there because I think that is such a underutilized, but important fact or important component. Cause think about it, you know, here's how I like to think about it. If you've coached at any level, um, especially the high school or college level, what happens when you get athletes back for the first time from uh, the summer break? Oh my say. goodness, yes. <laughs> it's the best time it, of year, man. It's awesome. <laughs> it's You're just excited. <laughs> everyone's jazzed. Everyone's like, 
uh, you know, wanting to push it and, you know, train and do hard things and all that stuff, right? And what inevitably happens after week after week, month after month of learning, of training that sometimes goes away to a bit you know it it decreases as you as it becomes normalized as they get used to these patterns etc but i've always thought of it as a coach is my job is to pay attention to that and then figure out how do we get back up to where this is exciting you know how do we get back to where someone is like not going through the motions of, oh, I've got this hard workout today, I'm going to do it. But getting back to that, you know, coming off summer break, I'm excited for this tempo run. I'm excited to get out there with this stuff. And then it's not going to be every time. But I, I think that is almost like a key surrogate, like marker or indicator to a degree on on where you are in this recoverability. If every single, uh, if every single workout shifts towards like i'm just getting through it or i'm just surviving then then that's a good sign that hey we might be crossing over like this recovery point where we've got to we've got to do something where we get that itch back right we've got to have enough space where they forget and they're like oh yeah running fast is is fun you know so you know i just think that's um it's a good insight and pen to kind of put there because it, it's not just, you know, we're, we're kind of giving you as coaches a bunch of things to pay attention to, you know, how to pay attention to fatigue, maybe use questionnaires, how to use your coach's eye to look at movement. But it's also looking at like the psychological anticipation or arousal that like how people are approaching workouts, which tells you like, are they in the doldrums, like pushing the edge, or are they in a good spot psychologically, which tells you that hey, probably you know everything else they're 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 ready to go, and we can press this training uh, threshold a bit. And this is what Bowerman meant by like he rather undertrain people than overtrain. So it's about keeping that hunger, like the hunger needs to be deep and it needs to be robust because he understood. And as many other coaches have, that that psychological component, that looking forward to training, that looking forward to, you know, the daily activity, that itch, so to speak, that will elevate the training that is actually done. Versus if you overload to excess, if you put way too much on someone's plate, they can't eat the whole meal. They get full, right? So, and that's, again, think of just normal rhythms in life. Like we don't eat every minute every day versus despite what you hear on the internet, extended long periods of fasting isn't the most pleasurable activity either, right? It's a balance of when we have meals and how often we are nourished. And it's the same situation here. You got to feed through the work, but then you also have to give space to rest and digest, right? And that's the delicate balance of a coach, but you're always better served as a heuristic and a general rule of thumb for most coaches in most training situations to do a little bit less than to do a little bit more. Because again, it's not just the physical ramifications that that serves, but it's also the psychological. You'll get more out of an athlete in their training if you offer them to do a little bit less. Like good example right now is I'm working with a master's runner who was a former uh, like national level um, runner f- back in the day for the farm team, 
uh, in the 800 meters and the 1500 meters. And he is shocked that on 25 to 35 miles a week, he is making rapid accelerations in his early 40s, um, you know, in a really short period of time. Well, it's because we're keeping the load and the amount of volume he's doing less because he has a lot more commitments now, full-time job, a kid, wife, etc. And so when he does do work, it's of very high quality. Every day there's some quality interjected, whether it's running quality from speed work, uh, steady states of three miles, what have you, or lifting quality, right? Getting in the gym and doing a lift session. And the lifts, though, he's like, these are the quickest, fastest, shortest lifts I've ever done. You know, it's only a couple, four four sets of three, four sets of four of activities and five five um, lifts or five um, exercises. That's it. It takes half hour. It's nothing. Think of the cumulative effect, though, right? Over time, over a six-week period, what's happened? His muscle definition has returned. He's lost over 10 pounds of, you know, body fat. He's running faster, you know, on every type of run, whether it's a recovery run or a fast run, right? It just took that period of uninterrupted focus of doing something. And he's always, oh, I could do more. I could do more. I go, that's great. I'm glad you could. You're not going to. <laughs> because he has an overachiever mindset where a lot of us do. They think more is generally better. And it can be, like Steve and I have said, but as a coach, again, keeping people hungry, keeping people motivated through like, oh, I just, you know, I want to get back out there or coach, I could do another, you know, set, I could do another, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. That's what Bowerman means and where the intelligence comes in is undertrain rather than overtrain. He's not saying do less work. He's what he really meant was like Steve alluded to here, which is a great point, Steve, is just keep people hungry. And by doing that, you'll magnify and improve the quality and return on the work you are doing. Yeah, I love the analogy to, you know, keep people hungry. Um, because it is, it's, it's, it's this like ebb and flow that you're, you're working on. Um, yeah, I can tell you what, like when a couple, like a year or yeah, almost two years ago, like I did an experiment of running as much as I could run and I ran like 150 miles a week for two or three weeks. And you know what? Like I didn't get hurt. I was able to, you know, in, stay injury free. But I tell you, after like three weeks of it, I just didn't have a, a desire to run anymore. I was just like, this is, I'm just like, there was no appetite for it. It was gone. It was just like, yeah, I don't want to get out the door and run. But scaling it back down with my own running, then it's like, oh, my happy medium for me, the place where I have a good amount of hunger and appetite is somewhere around the 70 miles, you know, 10 miles a day average um, r- r- running menu. And some days it's zero, some days it's 20, but, you know, in two sessions, but that's generally the amount I like enjoy running for my own intrinsic health and well-being. Anything more or less I found is just like I'm not running enough and so I get a little too antsy or it's too much and I just feel like I don't want to do this anymore even though I do enjoy you know going for my daily run. Yeah that's you know I I, I think it's it's finding that place and that place is going to change over time as well um, which is 
important to do. And we're not saying, oh, just do things that you enjoy, but it's it's another sense of feedback that tells you like, hey, am I in the right place over an extended period of time or am I not? And it's the reason why if you look at the literature again, like overtraining correlates or mimics really well, almost like a depressive like state. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it's, from it's, a biochemical standpoint, too, you just, yeah, you look at all the it, hormones and it's just like down the dumps. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you know, that's why you can use this feedback of excitement, hunger. Are you, you know, ready to get out the door? on some occasions like that's the key and it's not a one-off thing we're not saying like oh i wasn't excited to go run or work out today like i must uh be done with it but it's over this this you know this longer period if you're not you know my high school coach used to say like if you're not winning more workouts than you're like dreading or losing something's wrong right you know And that that's how it is. It's not like I'm going to be excited for every workout. But if I'm not at least showing up to the track being like, all right, this is going to be fun. Let's get it. Like every once in a while during a hard period of training, then something's wrong. Yeah. My rule is three, three workouts in a row. So if there's three workouts in a row or three training sessions in a row or difficult, um, stressful sessions in a row where you have that punch the clock mentality or you're dreading it and you're just like, if fine, I just get it done. And, you know, there's just, there's no joy. There really is no, um, you know, enthusiasm and excitement that's positive for the activity. That's a clear sign that the um, training stimulus threshold is being overreached for that athlete because one or two in a row, yeah, you can have a bad week. You can have a stressful period in life. Like we're all susceptible to those lulls, but when it goes beyond three, that's to me a really clear signal that, okay, we need to step back, uh, increase the appetite for training through some type of restorative period. Um, and this is also why, like, again, sure, you could work out and do intervals every single day, but the big, um, uh, argument and the big disservice to that is the monotony of doing intervals every single day. And that's why, again, we've, come to this place where initially before the introduction of say uh, the pure endurance method with Van Aken or Lydiard's um, introduction of marathon uh, style training, aerobic threshold style training that we, we did that intervals every day and it worked great for like Jim Ryan. It worked great for a couple, but it burnt so many people out, not just because of, the intensity and demand of the activity, but just the monotony of it, of just going to the track and just doing these intervals every day. People just got burnt out, right? And then the inverse too. If you just, all you do is run mega hard miles uh, or moderate miles, I should say, from a marathon training standpoint, you're doing 150 of those, you know, all the time. And it's not something you find naturally palatable. You're going to get burned out too. And so that's where it's also, we've gravitated towards this more traditional balanced training pro, uh, program and training training menu where it's some days we run fast and do intervals. Some days we run moderate and just do steady states. Some days we run super slow um, just to restore. Some days we take off. Some days we run long. Um, that's why that balance works because training every day is a little varied. It's a little different. 
Um, but it's, it's routine enough through p- different types of cycles or patterns of training that the repeated demand of that kind of training stimulus is re-exposed to the athlete over and over again in a steady enough uh, repetition so they can absorb the training. They can start to get that overcompensation, overload, and supercompensation to adapt to that. But that, again, is part of the variety we speak of in training is to be able to make those uh, changes, you know, in real time as necessary, but also plan for when they kind of run their course. And you do need a complete shift and changeover of training uh, activities and stimuli. Yeah, well, I mean, once again, it's why monotony is tied to overtraining, right? If you're if your training is too monotonous, like it, it, there's tons of research that shows that it predicts like a likelihood of overtraining. And it's, again, you adapt to it. And when there's no variety to it, like you're, you know, you go down in the dumps. And that's why change like is a stimulus in itself. We're not saying, hey, don't have a routine, don't have a pattern, don't have some monotony to it. But as a coach, when you're looking at this training stimulus and recoverability, you're, you're balancing this variety versus, you know, routine, like the routine to get enough of the same kind of stimulus to get an adaptation, like in a bonder chuck type method where you're repeating things to get this method, but then enough variety. So it doesn't become, Oh, this is like punching the clock going into workplace doing the same manual labor every day and driving yourself nuts. Right. And the, the great thing about Bonner Chuck too, and applying it as I've been applying it recently to my coaching practice is there's it, it's only six weeks, right? That's as long as a repeat week or microcycle training takes place about six weeks. And what happens is it's a complete changeover training stimuli, right? And activities. And so the whole concept is you get really good at the set stimuli or you um, you get a lot of response from that set stimuli, and then you change over to complete something new to get a response from that and so on and so forth. So it's not too varied. And what happens from the athlete standpoint is the first two or three weeks are a challenge because it's new. They're exploring it. They're getting adapted and used to it. They're saying, okay, I have a clear path. I want to get faster or put more weight on the bar or what have you, right? And then they start to see the payoffs in like week four, five, and six, they are getting faster. Things are coming, they're running faster times organically with the same degree of effort that, um, you know, they're applying in the beginning. And then they start to get this payoff, right? And then right then at week six, you say, okay, we're done. Change over brand new steam, like brand new exercises in the weight room, brand new workouts, constraints, everything. So it is a way to keep people hungry because they have enough time to get familiar and see progress. And then right at week six, you change it over because again, we're going on the, um, you know, uh, the truce of adaptation, the truce of uh, comp- um, response to stimulus that is true in exercise physiology and biochemistry, um, which is it's about a six week time horizon to get maximum or I should say optimal uh, response return on a, a set given stimuli versus if we go beyond that threshold, there's literature and evidence that shows time and time again, the rate of return for the work invested is very minuscule and kind of not worth the effort. And so 
that's the fun part of why that works. But if I ask someone to do it for 16 weeks, oh, they probably get burnt out because it's just this, this excessive habituation and monotony. And before they got probably physically burnt out, they'd be mentally burnt out because it's the same cereal every single day, cornflakes with no sugar. And at a certain point, you're like, I know it's healthy for me, but oh, I just, please, I want some, you know, Pop-Tarts. <laughs> Man, we're going with all sorts of food uh, analogies and comparisons here. I love it. Can you tell we <laughs> record these in the morning? Yes. Deep is the yeah. hunger. <laughs> <laughs> hunger is fueling these podcasts. We're going to have to get some uh, sponsors for uh, random breakfast. That's foods. true. Yes. <laughs> But you know, I, I I I'm glad you brought up the uh, the tangent end of Bondarchuk because it is, and you know the interesting thing is if you look at Trout Training Evolved, you used to have Zadapek who did basically very similar things day after day after day after day after day, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and that was in the '50s, and then eventually we we moved into the cycle of Lydiard where he said, you know, we need to vary this up to degrees so we have these different periods but you did the same thing day after day after day after day for that long period or block yeah exactly that's all you did that's all that's it (laughs) you did bounding every single day you did intervals every single day except sunday like yes you had your one day variation um and, and then we've moved into the what i'd call a hyper variation phase to a degree where it was everything mixed and blended and it's it's interesting to see and i'm not sure there's one one great um or there or i am sure that there isn't one profound you know perfect um thing here but i think you know coming back and exploring and in your own coaching like playing with this monotony versus variation idea um is is important and something that is worthwhile and i don't think we've hit the nail on the head on like this is the the golden mean of variation versus monotony we need yeah it's and it's it is dependent on situation and situation right if you're a high school coach who's uh, coaching a multi-sport athlete and you only see them for three months out of the year you know, there's going to be different things you're trying to elicit in that short period of time. You have them in between basketball and soccer, right? Or if you're working with someone potentially on a multi-year time horizon in the university setting or even uh, as a uh, post-collegiate or in the training client setting, then you can start to think in a little bit broader strokes and time horizons, right? Um, But at the end of the day, it's about like we talked about coaching in general, it's about crafting a vision and rallying people around that with a very high degree of clarity of, all right, here's the vision. And then here's how we're going to execute and move us forward, whether collectively and or individually towards being able to do this thing, express this ability that you want to express, right? Whatever that ability may be, squatting more, uh, running a marathon at a certain time, qualifying to a certain um, level of competitiveness, uh, whether it's Boston Marathon or the Olympic Trials or the Olympic Games or what have you, uh, that I think it comes down to the key. Uh, More and more I come back to it, the more and more it comes back to clarity. And the better job we as coaches can communicate clearly what we're trying to get 
from an immediate training standpoint, a residual, and a cumulative training standpoint, and keep that in the in our minds at all times, but also be able to remind the athlete when they need a period of reminder, when things aren't going to plan. And it's like, it's okay. I tell athletes all this a lot. It's okay. I never expect anything to go to plan. We have a plan to give us a general orientation as a compass, but we're going to have to call audibles all the time. And that's what the most successful coaching and athlete relationships are all about is the ability to call the correct audible at the correct time to keep the athlete and or the team on path in the direction towards meeting their um, training uh, aim and targets and objectives. Yeah, I think I, I think that's kind of the, the key of it is like, how do we, you know, if I was to summarize this kind of topic, it's you're really testing, watching, observing, like, nudging back and forth as you're trying to keep them on this path towards um, adaptation and performance growth. And there's a lot of different, as you hopefully heard throughout this, there's a lot of different ways to do that. We can get highly technical. We can just use observation. We can use questionnaires. We can just ask our athletes for feedback. We can look at their enjoyment of the task. But what we're doing is we're trying as we watch these workouts, as we write this training, we're trying to keep them back and forth into this relative zone that we know that they can handle will still improve. And, you know, I think, I think what we're trying to get across here is part of the job as a coach is to understand the individuality and the variability within individuals that, that it occurs. So don't get locked into some exact, um, you know, program, don't get locked into some exact pattern. If someone is showing you and telling you the signs, essentially, that they need variation out of this, they need a different, you know, pattern, they need some more space, let's say, or more recoverability after it. So it's really on on taking the time, it's kind of a new school, but mostly old school approach of taking the time to see what your athletes are telling you both in terms of their performance, their mechanics and their psychology and well-being, so that you can, you know, adjust accordingly as a coach. Yeah. It's not being heavy handed. It's just being observant and being able to interpret the signals you're seeing as a coach to the um, benefit of the athlete. And that's why we always got to remember the training stimulus and recoverability are bedfellows. They're always coupled. Even though we, the athlete might think, I get better when I do this exciting work, running fast, lifting, um, you know, heavy or, you know, plyometrics or what have you, or amassing a lot of training volume. It's only in relation to their ability to absorb and recover from the given set of stimuli individually and collectively, right? And I'm going to leave or end with a steal the words of Vern Gambetta from his book, Athletic Development. Um, you know, this conversation brought this very succinct summary uh, that comes at the end of chapter five in that book, page 80. Um, the chapter is the strategies for performance training. And Verm summarizes performance training, strategies for performance training as such. Program design is based on the predictability of the body's adaptive response. Training is a stress 
and how the athlete responds to that stress is the determining factor in the success of the training program. The planning of the actual training program, regardless of whether it is an individual session or a career plan, must apply the planning principles. It is an ongoing process that will be manifested in the athlete's performance. And I think that's the key thing to remind ourselves. It's not static. It's fluid. It's ongoing. And the athlete's performance in the day-to-day, week-to-week, session-to-session, competition-competition is the determining evidence of whether the training uh, or program design and plan is effective or not. Love it. Fern Gambetta, as always, spreading wisdom. It's a great um, book. If you haven't read it, read please it. read it. Like it's so succinct, and Vern just nails the nails it on the head, word after word. It's the most succinct thing on uh, athletic development I've ever read. So, pick that book up. So, with that, until next time. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying. If you have any topics or anything, any feedback you wanna. Uh, give us don't hesitate to reach out Uh, mostly on twitter i think is the best way to do so we appreciate you guys listening and until next time